0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, I chat with JL Collins about index fund investing, personal finance principles, and the road to financial independence. JL is an accomplished consultant, speaker, and best-selling author of The Simple Path to Wealth. JL has taught me a lot throughout the years, so I was honored to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with him. Although a lot of us here in the TIP community are individual stock pickers, JL's investing strategy is still very interesting and makes you think about your investing in a different way. JL even mentions his personal secret that he used to be an individual stock picker. No one can say whether picking individual stocks or index investing is right for you, but I hope this conversation will help you broaden your horizon and learn new ways to potentially increase your returns over the long term.
2: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I'm super excited to have a fantastic guest with me today, J.L. Collins. Welcome to the show, JL.
3: Thanks, Robert. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
1: I'm personally familiar with you from your blog, your stock series, and your book. But for those listening to the show today that might not be familiar with you, please tell us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today.
3: Well, in terms of the blog and the book, back in 2000, I've always been interested in in investing and, and finance, and it's been kind of an avocation for mine and as my daughter was growing up i was trying to uh, convince her of the importance of understanding this kind of thing and i probably pushed it too soon and too hard and i turned her off to the whole subject and so in 2011 i started writing a series of letters to her that hopefully would be available when if if and when the time came when she was ready to to, to hear it and receive the information and a friend of mine I shared them with a friend of mine and and he suggested, uh, he said, this stuff's pretty good and probably put it on a blog. And at the time, I'd never seen a blog. I'd I'd heard of them. I kind of knew what they were. I didn't have any particular interest in blogs or blogging, but it occurred to me this would be a great way to archive the information. And so I created a blog. I joked the first blog post I ever read was the first one I wrote (laughs) and I start putting this stuff up on the blog. And then at this friend's suggestion I sent around to family and friends, which is why the blog is called J L Collins NH, NH for New Hampshire, where I know you are. And that's where we were at the time, because I wanted people to know it was me. I never dreamed it would develop a larger audience, let alone the international audience it has now, or I would have come up with some more clever title, or at least I would have tried. But yeah, this was just a way to archive information uh, for my daughter. And I started uh, writing it there, and then began the stock series, which is sort of the hallmark of the blog. And uh, about four years into, into writing the blog, it occurred to me that by writing the stock series, I'd really kind of written the material for a book, which I never had the discipline to do prior to that. It was always kind of a vague ambition of mine to write a book. So I sat down to, to convert the material into the, the book, which is, came out in 2016, The Simple Path to Wealth.
1: So where did your passion or just interest for finance come from?
3: Well, I, I suppose you know, like a lot of things, you know, our psychologies are formed when we're children. And when I was young, um, my father was an independent business guy and he was fairly successful and we had a fairly comfortable life. And he put my two older sisters through college pretty easily, but he was also a cigarette smoker. And cigarette smoking tends to slowly debilitate you. And that's what it did to him. And as he lost his health, uh, he lost his ability to work. As his ability to work declined, so did the income. And unfortunately, my father was not a saver or investor. And so we went from being very comfortable uh, to being very uncomfortable. It became very difficult financial times in our family. And I wound up putting myself through school, which is fine. But just to give you an idea of the change in economic. Status, if you will, that made a profound impression on me. It made me realize that the world is a very insecure place, and like, unless you take steps to protect yourself, and the way you protect yourself is to have a financial resources that work for you if and when the time comes when you can't or you no longer want to work. And so that's what motivated me to look into investing, and uh, and then it was just a matter of beginning to learn about what that meant and how to do it, and. That sent me on a decades long journey. Many of those decades were spent making some really serious mistakes along the way, which is sometimes people ask me, How do you know all this stuff? And it's, well, it's, if there's a mistake to be made in investing, I've probably made it.
1: So, did you go on to study finance or investing in college, or did you do this as just a passion on the
3: side? It's strictly an avocation. I was an English major. So, no, I, I, did not, I didn't study finance or investing in. College at all. It was something that I had an interest in, and I learned on my own, if you will. As I think a lot of people learn a lot of things. But yeah, it 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 was something that, fortunately for me, I was fascinated me, and so the learning process was a lot of fun. It wasn't wasn't drudgery. But one of the things I learned in trying to convey this to my daughter is people like me, and presumably like you, and maybe many of your listeners, we're the odd ones out. If if you really like this stuff, but it's important for everybody. As Christy Shen, my friend who uh, writes Millennial Revolution and who's a speaker at Architauqua says, if you understand money, life is incredibly easy. If you don't understand money, it can be incredibly hard. And my daughter doesn't have any inherent interest in this stuff, but she knows it's important. And the beauty of the simple path is you just need to get a few things right, and then you can set it on autopilot and let it run. Well, you go out and do more important things with your life than worrying about your investments.
1: So I want to dive into some of my favorite concepts that you've written about in your book and your stock series. And I also want to talk about some of the concepts that some people might consider controversial, or at least they're just different (laughs) than the advice we hear given by other financial experts. So let's first talk about why people must avoid debt and what we can do if we already have it.
3: Well, first of all, if you already have it, it's debt to me is like being covered with blood sucking leeches. They just drain your, your life energy. And my advice, and I have a chapter in the book, and, and there's a post in the stock series on this. If you've got debt, just like if you have covered with leeches, you take out your sharpest knife and you start scraping those little suckers off. And that should be priority number one. Now, there's debt and there's debt. If you have student loans, which I find appalling, but nevertheless, it is the way of the world these days. You may have a low interest rate and a big number, and and that may be a longer term thing. Mortgages, if you own a house, are a slightly different thing. But if you're really interested, if you're starting out young, and at the beginning, you're really interested in financial independence, I would avoid buying a house or at the very least buy the most modest house you can so you have the most modest amount of debt. Debt is a constant drain on you and your resources and it's it's a major obstacle to building wealth. Now the good news is if you have debt and you take out that sharp knife and you start scraping it off, which means basically living below your means if you're not already and diverting that money you're not spending into paying off that debt, you're developing an excellent habit, which is living on less than you earn and setting aside money to do more important things, initially to pay off the debt. But once the debt's gone, if you continue that discipline, now you have a flow of capital to begin investing and building your wealth.
1: So, should people p- wait to pay off all of their debt before they start investing?
3: Well, again, I wouldn't say you necessarily want to wait to pay out, off all of it, especially if you have uh, student loans and especially in the amounts, some of the horrific amounts that I hear about. And if you have a mortgage, and depending on what it is, you probably don't necessarily want to wait. You'll probably want to trim your living expenses in other places. But the best thing to do is to avoid the debt to begin with.
1: So is it safe to say maybe student loans, assuming that they're low rate, and then your mortgage, again, assuming it's pretty low rate, that those two can kind of be paid off as you invest. But anything else, car loans, credit cards, things of that nature that might be a little bit higher interest rate, those should be paid off before you start investing.
3: I think you could say it that way. You, you could also say, and this is a common question I get. Let's take a mortgage as an example. And people will say, well, gee, should I pay off my mortgage first or should I invest first? And my response to that is it kind of depends on what your interest rate is. So as a basic rule of thumb, and this is very general, I, I kind of say, you know, if you've got an interest rate of say 3% or less, I probably would not be in a hurry to pay off that debt. And I would. I'd probably focus more on investing. If your interest rate on whatever it is, whether it's a house or credit cards or a car, 6% or more, you know, 6% or more, I'd probably say, you know what, I'd focus on paying off that debt. Because when you pay off debt, it's the equivalent of earning that return. And so if you have, say, a 6% debt, 6% isn't a huge return. But in paying off your debt, it's an absolutely guaranteed return. And finding a guaranteed six percent return is is not easy. So I would focus on paying that debt off. Now, what about the debt between three and five and a half or six percent? Then it becomes a little more of an emotional decision. So I particularly, you know, I kinda loathe having debt. So I paid off mortgages. I don't own a house. Well, actually I own a vacation house at the moment that we paid cash for, but when I own personal residence houses you know i I like to pay off the mortgage earlier, and I did it, but that that was more personal preference. So if you're in that, that range three to five, six percent, you can make the call more on your your own personal emotional comfort level, if you will.
1: Yeah, and I've personally heeded that exact advice. I have a small car loan, but it's at zero point seven four percent because this is from a few years ago. I actually worked at the credit union where I got the loan through, so we got a discount on the loan. Rates were at all time lows, so for me, it just—I mean, it's under one percent. It just doesn't make sense for me to accelerate that. I've just kind of been slowly letting it take its time, and then you know, investing the difference. I do have some student loans, but those are still again—they're only four and a quarter percent, which is not too high for a relatively small student loan balance. So, again, I've personally made that decision to just invest the difference and just continue to make the monthly payments.
3: Yeah. And I'd, I'd be very comfortable with that decision on your behalf. And of course, obviously, if you decided that you wanted to pay down some of that debt, you'd focus on the higher interest student loan rather than the very low interest car payment.
1: Exactly. So, my next question. It made me chuckle a little as I was writing it and preparing for our conversation, but you've written that having FU money is important. What do you mean by that? And why is it important?
3: <laughs> well, FU, first of all, maybe we ought, to, we ought to define it. When I first started investing and going down this path, there were no computers, there was no internet. I had never heard of the concept of financial independence. In fact, I didn't hear of that concept until after I started my blog. And sometime in the early 70s I read a novel by James Clavell called Noble House. Excellent book by the way if anybody is interested in that novel there's a character and her ambition is to have a few money. And that was a concept I'd never heard before but it immediately resonated with me and what she meant by that goal was having enough money that she never had to work again that she never had to take any guff from anybody again and that crystallized what was a vague goal in my mind. And and I love, and I love the term. Now, in the book, FU money was the equivalent of financial independence. In other words, having enough that you never have to work again. In my mind, I, and especially after I came across the term financial independence, I now see FU, and this is just personal definition, but I, I define FU money as an intermediate step. So financial independence is when you truly have enough that you don't have to work, work becomes optional. FU money is the stage in between living paycheck to paycheck and getting to full FI. And every little bit you add to your FU money pile makes you that much stronger, that much more independent, that much freer. And so it's not an on off switch from paycheck to paycheck to financial independence there's a long runway that's very valuable in between. So sometimes people starting on this path, and it can seem daunting to start from ground zero or even in debt and get all the way to financial independence. And it's important to understand that every step you take along that path improves your situation, makes you a little bit stronger, makes you a little more independent, makes you a little freer to make bolder decisions. And that in my mind is what FU Money is. Now. Part of your question was what makes it important, and I think defining it kind of defines why it's important.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great explanation. I've studied the financial independence movement, but I haven't really come across many other people that talk about that area in the middle between paycheck to paycheck and full FI. So I think it's really interesting that you've been able to define this and really help people make it so not not so daunting for them.
3: You know, I, I take pride. I, I think I can claim with some validity. I certainly can't claim to have created the term FU Money, because as I say, I found it in the novel, and I don't even think James clavell came up with it originally. But I'm pretty confident I was the first one to introduce it to the FI community, and I take some pride in that.
1: So why is understanding how to think about money a key to building wealth?
3: Well, I think that most people have a, have a very narrow idea of what money is. And they see it only as a means to buy things. And you can see this commonly if you ever see people interviewed, and what would you do if you won the lottery? Well, you know, you know almost inevitably you'll get a litany of things that they would buy with very little concept of, of the kind of freedom that, that that money would provide. You can look at, at uh, individuals who suddenly come into large amounts of money you know, they can be sports stars, they can be movie stars, they can be corporate executives, high-powered lawyers, anybody who suddenly maybe has worked their way up, honed their craft, and is suddenly making a very large amount of money all too frequently because they don't understand money. They see it only as a means to buy things. And it certainly is a means to buy things. That's the reason money was originally created as a a way of facilitating uh, commerce between people. So if you made shoes and I grew corn, we didn't have to exchange corn for shoes. There was something else we could use that was more, more utilitarian. But money is so much more than that. I mean, money can be your servant. Money can work when you can't work. And so I think it's important for people to take the next step and understand not just what money can buy, but what money can do if you employ it correctly, if you invest it correctly.
1: And I'm sure we'll talk about what those types of things it can do as you invest it correctly throughout the rest of the show. And so, where do you think traditional investing advice goes wrong and what actually
3: works? I think that, you know, I have in in the book and in the stock series, I have a chapter and a post on why most people lose money in the stock market. And in essence, they lose money in the stock market because they don't really understand what kind of an animal it is and so they tend to buy a stock or maybe a fund and usually on a tip from somebody and they're hoping it'll go up and then bear market like the one we're in the middle of happens and they lose a bunch of money and sell out in a panic and they say wow this this stock market stuff is nothing but gambling it's going all Vegas I'll never I'll never do that again and certainly that's part of what the stock market is speculators traders spend a lot of their time buying and selling, hoping to to take advantage of short-term moves in the market. It's not the kind of investing I talk about. I talk about long-term investing, investing for the decades. And the way you do that is buying, consisting, and holding, and understanding that periods like we're going through now, bear markets are normal. It's like being surprised if you live in New Hampshire, it's like being surprised if a if a blizzard comes through. If you live, live in New Hampshire, you shouldn't be surprised by blizzards. Doesn't mean they're easy to deal with or pleasant, doesn't mean that they can't do damage, but nobody should be surprised by it. It's the same thing if you're a stock market investor as opposed to a speculator investor. Nobody should be surprised by bear markets. It is a natural part of the process. And if you are growing your wealth, if you're young and you're growing your wealth, you're living on less than you earn, you paid off your debt, now you're channeling that money into investment. When the stock market takes one of its periodic plunges, and it does periodically and always will periodically, that simply allows you to buy more shares with your money. My daughter, for instance, puts money into VTSAX, which is my favorite fund. It's Vanguard's Total Stock Market Index Fund. And I actually, I put up this up on Twitter and Facebook. I noticed that in March when she made her contribution, it bought 19% more shares than her contribution in February did. Well, that's the power of staying the course and continuing to invest. And in that sense, a bear market like this one is an absolute gift to her and to anybody else who's building their wealth adding on a regular basis as long as they don't panic and sell.
1: I noticed that exact same thing. So I work a corporate job and usually month to month, when I contribute to my 401k, I don't look at the fluctuations of how many shares of the S&P 500 index fund that I'm invested in. It's buying, you know, it goes up and down a little bit week to week, but our annual bonuses that we get hit in mid to late March. And so it just happened to time perfectly. Everything had just dropped 25 or 30%. Our bonuses got deposited into our 401k account. And so I went in and I looked and it, it bought so much more just because it was down 25 or 30%. And so- I was just looking at that myself not too long ago, so I know exactly what you're talking about.
3: Yeah. People like Warren Buffett, I think everybody knows, and Jack Bogle, who is the guy who founded Vanguard and created the first index fund, have been fond of saying that stocks are the only thing that when they go on sale, people run away. Anything else goes on sale, we run to the store to buy more of it. Stocks go on sale and people run for the exits. That's what creates the opportunity for, for us.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic because for me, and you might be similar, but I've never seen it that way, but I've, I've seen the quotes and I've heard the quotes and I understand a lot of people are that way. When things go down, they run the other way, take their money out. But for me, I've always seen that as an opportunity and, and put more money to work in those times.
3: If you're following my approach, that's exactly the right thing to do. But Let me make another point on that because of course, what's causing this bear market is the COVID-19 virus and, and This is the only bear market in my now long investing career that's been caused by a virus, and people are saying, "Well, this is really serious, so therefore it's different." Well, every time there's a bear market, what triggers it is serious. There's never a bear market triggered by happy news. There's always some underlining, very negative, very scary thing that triggers bear markets. Otherwise, probably wouldn't happen. So, of course, this is scary, and of course, it feels different. They always do, but they never are. And if someday comes where it truly is different and the market doesn't recover, you've just witnessed either the end of the United States as a viable country or the end of civilization overall. So and then it won't matter where you're invested. So it's a great buying opportunity. I you know, I'm old enough to actually remember the Cuban Missile Crisis in the sixties when the US and the Soviet Union were on the brink of all-out nuclear war. Talk about something that would have destroyed civilization, certainly destroyed those two countries. What a wonderful time to buy stocks because they were depressed because of the fear of nuclear war. If the nuclear war happens, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't happen, which it didn't, thank God you can look at history from 1963 to now what a tremendous growth you would have had just investing then so whenever people are think that they're dealing with an end of the world event and that's what scares them that's a, that's a wonderful buying opportunity the world ends who cares if the world doesn't end you're going to prosper
1: yeah i mean if worst case scenario you have a lot bigger Things to worry about than your investments going down 40, 50, 60%, even to zero. You have a lot bigger issues if that ends up becoming true. And I love those points you made because I'm actually, I've been studying the market. So I know all of the crashes, or at least I know them pretty well because I'm passionate about this material and I love learning about it. But I'm too young. I didn't experience any other market crashes. We've been in one of the best bull markets for 10 years. So for me, this is the first bear market that I'm actually personally experiencing. And so I've been trying to talk to a lot of other investors about you know, how did 2008 feel? How did 2009 feel compared to today? And it's interesting because everybody felt back then that that time was different. Everybody feels that this time is different. And just like you said, everybody thinks every time is different and ultimately it never is. And things always come out the other side.
3: And the other thing is if if and when the time comes where it truly is different, it also won't matter whether you invest in stocks or, or something else. You know, I got a comment on my Twitter feed from Somebody and I can't can't quote it exactly. I I retweeted it because I liked it, but he said something to the effect of you know, wow. When you say it's scary and painful to live through one of these things, you're not kidding, or it really is, or something along those lines. And I had, there was a commenter on my blog named Gino, and I'm not going to quote him exactly, but but he said something along the lines of you know, times like these are the price we pay for the return stocks deliver. It's dealing with these ugly moments and. And that's the price you have to pay. And that's, you know, just like you live in New Hampshire, which is a beautiful state. I spent 15 years there myself. But if you live in New Hampshire, you got to be willing to deal with blizzards. There's just no way around that. And if you're not willing to deal with blizzards, then don't live in New Hampshire. And if you're not willing to live through bear markets, don't invest in stocks.
1: We had gone through three, four, maybe five days in a row where it was. High fifties, low sixties, and we everybody was so excited. We're like, "This is spring!" I was out riding my dirt bike. I, we were having a great time, and then we just got six to eight inches of snow yesterday or two days ago. So the analogy couldn't fit any better. It's exactly what you said about the stock market. It's the same way.
3: And I'll bet native New Hampshireites like yourself weren't surprised by that. You know, you've you've been down that path before, where you know it's sunny and and beautiful, and the next day it's it's six inches of snow. So.
1: Like the market, I've learned to never be surprised by the weather in New Hampshire. So I think we've alluded to it a bit over the last few minutes, but you have a saying that the stock market always goes up. And I think we've talked about how what you mean by that is that things will go down, but in the long term, they go up. And is that more or less what you mean by that saying?
3: The stock market always recovers. And again, the day that it doesn't marks either the end of the country or the end of civilization. Now, sometimes people, I get a lot of pushback on that by people are confused with volatility. The stock market is very, very volatile. And so it's going up and down all the time. But if you look at a graph of the stock market over any extended length of time, you will see that volatility in sharp relief, but you'll also see that the trend from from left to right is relentlessly upwards. And it's not surprising because the stock market especially the total stock market, which is what I recommend investing in, is simply all of the publicly traded companies in the United States. And so all of those companies are continually vying with each other and with the economy to succeed. And some will in a spectacular fashion in some cases, some won't. Those that don't fall away, they fall off the indexes. They either go out of business or grow too small to be listed. And they're replaced by new dynamic companies coming up. So that makes the index self-cleansing, a term I coined and I'm very proud of. So the the old debris gets gets swept away with new exciting things and that can keep growing. And when you buy the index fund, you own a piece of every one of those companies and everybody from the CEO to the factory floor is working to make you richer. That's gonna work out over time.
1: So if if that's the case that the market always goes up. And I agree with you that, that statement. I'm not one of those people that would be arguing with you over that. But why then do people still lose money when they're investing?
3: Well, I think the, the best way to answer that is to the way Warren Buffett answered it. And again, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but a number of years ago, he made the point looking at the last century that in the last century, the market started the 1900s at 600, maybe something like that. 60 or 600, I'm not remembering it correctly. But anyway, at the end of the century, it was up around 13,000, 14,000. And Buffett said, How do you lose money in a market that goes from 600 to 14,000? And by the way, you know, a couple of world wars and a great depression in the middle of that. So to put things in perspective. And his answer is people try to dance in and out of it. You know, they they try to time it. And almost inevitably, if you do that, you're going you're gonna to be on the wrong side. You just have to get too many things right to make that work. And so people tend to buy when it's high and they tend to panic and sell when it's low. And that's how you lose money. Best thing to do is buy when you have money and just keep buying and hold it forever. That's what I tell my daughter. That's what I do myself.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
0: This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show.
1: You've mentioned Buffett a couple times and he's one of my favorite investors to study, but you don't pick individual stocks much yourself if at all. So how has Buffett impacted you as an investor who buys almost exclusively just a stock market, a broad stock market index?
3: So Warren Buffett is an interesting case because the research is very, very clear. That outperforming the basic index is a loser's game for the most part. And yet, Warren Buffett is someone who's done it over the decades. I cringe when people say, Well, I'm just going to pick individual stocks. I'm going to do what Warren does, as if Warren is one of the reasons that Warren is one of the richest people in the world, one of the most lionized and famous, is he has been able to do something that very, very few people are able to do. And the idea that you and I, or anybody listening, and replicate that is silly. It's like saying, oh, you know what? When I was growing up, Muhammad Ali was the greatest heavyweight boxer in the world. Probably, in my opinion, still is the greatest of all time. That doesn't mean that, that I'd gone through that same process and gotten the same result. I could have done everything that all the training that Ali did, I could have been his fit and could have had Angelo own my skills as best as possible, and if I got in the ring with Ali, to kill me. So Warren Buffett has done something extraordinary, and the important thing is Warren Buffett himself recognizes that, and that's why he recommends index investing when he dies for his heirs. So he's not saying Warren Buffett is not encouraging anybody to go out and try to buy individual stocks. If anything, he's encouraging them to to buy index funds, and that's what he's going to. He's specified should be done. Uh, about his death
1: And just because you study Warren Buffett, like it sounds like you have, that doesn't mean you have to pick individual stocks. you can still learn from all of the philosophies and all of the other just different investing principles that he has that can benefit you as an investor, even as an index investor, like you said, investing when there's blood in the streets or be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful you know things like that those can apply those principles apply to index investing as well
3: yeah, absolutely I mean. Warren Buffett has has a lot to offer, and it's well worth paying attention to what he has to say. Without thinking, you can emulate what he's accomplished through through individual investing in individual stocks.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big disconnect. Is I think a lot of people study him because they want to try and pick individual stocks and replicate what he's done. Whereas it might be a better strategy to study him and learn how he thinks about investing, so that you can implement that type of. Thought process or that type of thinking into your investing when it may not be about individual stocks.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, although we're experiencing a bear market right now, over the last decade we've experienced one of the strongest bull markets that the U.S. has seen. So, talk to us a bit about how people should invest in a raging bull market as well as a bear market.
3: First of all, the 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 bull market was has kind of been an. I'm almost glad this bear market is here. In fact, I am glad this bear market is here. I wish it hadn't been triggered by something that kills people. And that's tragic. But when I started the blog in 2011 until just in the last few weeks, the market pretty much had done nothing but go up. And in my writing, I talk all the time about how it's volatile and you have to expect bear markets and et cetera, et cetera. And there were never any bear markets for people to experience. And it concerned me that people would think, well, these are imaginary things in jail's mind that have no longer happened. And uh, of course, now we know they're anything but imaginary. So you're referring to a post I, I wrote probably, I want to say, around 2014, investing in a raging bull, because in 2014, as for the next six years after that, the market was a raging bull. And basically, the answer is the same. You just keep investing all the time. You invest on a regular basis, you invest as much as you can whenever you can, you don't try to time the market. You don't worry about it when it's going up. You don't worry about it when it's going down. You worry about what it's going to look like decades from now. And uh, Jack Bogle was fond of saying, and of course, this goes back to the days before we could see everything instantly on computers and investment companies mailed you your monthly statement. And Bogle was fond of saying, you know, just invest. Don't even open those statements. Don't pay any attention to them for 20 years. And then when you open that final statement, have a cardiologist standing by because you will be stunned at how much it's, it's grown to. So investing is a long-term gain. And for those of us who are in it for the long-term, and in my opinion, that's the only way you should be in it, doesn't matter whether it's going up or down. I don't know right now, I don't know where the market's going from here. And anybody who tells you they do, is they're fantasizing, they're guessing. The last time I looked, just early this morning. It's up again today. It was up big yesterday. I certainly wouldn't have predicted that on Sunday, but I wouldn't have discounted it. I don't even know how it's going to end today, let alone what it's going to do the rest of the week. That's an unknowable thing. But what is knowable, as we talked about earlier, is that over time, the trend is relentlessly up. And I want to be on that trend.
1: And the thing about making guesses is that if 10 people make guesses and they all vote different ways, half of them will be right and then half of the other people will be right and then if you continue to do this forever ultimately there's people that just look very smart and then they think that they can guess the market or do whatever they need to to bring in a lot of money from other people and that's just not the case right nobody can nobody knows where the market's going and if somebody tells you that they know then you should probably run the other direction
3: right and when people get it right you know they confuse great good luck with skill and that's hubris is, is maybe one of the most dangerous things that to your investment success is thinking that you've actually figured it out. And by the way, I say that from experience. It's a mistake that I made. The analogy I like to draw is Wall Street is, is large. There are literally thousands of people trying to figure out what the market's going to do. And at any given time, somebody has predicted every possibility, anything the market possibly do. Someone has predicted it. And therefore, someone and frequently some collection of people are going to be right. Doesn't mean that they had a skill in predicting. That just means that somebody had to be right. If you look at the lottery, if you look at Powerball, if you, Robert, win Powerball this week, you're not going to run around, I hope, saying, wow, I figured out how to pick winning lottery numbers. And nobody would believe you if you did. Everybody would look at you and say, wow, that Robert got really lucky because if you have enough people buying lottery tickets, somebody is going to hit the winning numbers. But it would be foolish to suggest that that somebody had figured out how to pick winning lottery numbers and could repeat it. And it's, nobody does that with the lottery, but people commonly do it with predictions in the stock market.
1: Yeah. I forget where I heard it or what book I read it in. It might've been A Random Walk Down Wall Street, but I could be wrong. And I might butcher the analogy a little bit, but there was a story that I once read where there was a money manager who had two sets of note cards that he would mail out to potential clients. And on one card, he'd put one thing, and on another card, he'd put the other. And he would just send them over and over and over for a week or a couple weeks straight. And although it's a very small percentage of some of those people would get cards that were the right ones every single day, and he would look brilliant. And then that would bring in a ton of money for his fund. And of course, I think that's a hypothetical example, but it's, it illustrates your point is that there's going to be people who get these things right just by luck.
3: Well, Matt, you know, I actually wrote about that very example in a post titled, You Too Can Be Conned. But yeah, that was actually a scam. And the scam unfolded just the way you described it. He got a fairly large mailing list and picked a very volatile stock and sent out to half that mailing list predicting it would drop and half predicting that it would go up. And of course, he was right on one of those because it tended to be volatile. And then he'd throw away the ones where he was wrong. And that half, he would make another similar prediction, again, throw away the half where he was wrong. And and he wheedled it down until you know he had some small but not insignificant group of people who'd gotten maybe half a dozen of these from him where he was right every time. And that looked really compelling. Looked like he had the magic wand. And of course it was it was a scam.
1: So one of the things I've been most looking forward to talking to you about is why you don't like dollar cost averaging. A lot of people, a part of our Facebook group, asked this question when I shared with them that we'd be recording an episode together. So why don't you like dollar cost averaging?
3: Well, first of all, maybe we again need some definitions. So I mentioned earlier that Bear markets are a gift to young people who are putting money into the market on a regular basis. And that is a form of dollar cost averaging. You don't have any option but to dollar cost average in that, in that scenario because you're getting money at a, on a periodic basis in your salary or your income or if you're a self-employed, your earnings. So by definition, you have to put it in a little bit of a time. And that does work in your favor over the decades of up and down. But when we're talking about dollar cost averaging for this purpose, we're talking about if you have a lump sum of money. And again, I have a chapter in the book and a post about this for anybody who's interested in more detail. And so the question becomes, what if I have a lump sum of money from you know, an inheritance or maybe I had an investment property I sold, wherever it came from, Like you suddenly find yourself with a big chunk of money. Do you parcel it into the market over a period of time, a little bit at a time, like, we were just describing you might do from your income. So do you parcel it into the market over a period of time or do you put it in a lump sum? And it's in that case that I'm not a fan of dollar cost averaging because the math favors putting it in in a lump sum. The market goes up about 75% of the time and it goes down 25% of the time. And the only time you are advantaged by dollar cost averaging is if the market goes down. So clearly, somebody who had a lump sum of money in January of this year, if they had decided to dollar cost average because of the bear market, they would be better off. But it's important to understand that bear markets are a fairly rare event, And in the vast majority of the time, in fact, statistically 75% of the time, the market goes up from any given point. And so by dollar cost averaging, you are simply buying those shares at steadily more and more expensive levels. But the second thing is that dollar cost averaging really doesn't accomplish the goal that people embrace it for. And that goal is, you know, I don't want to put, I don't want to push a bunch of money in and then suddenly have a bear market snap its jaws on me. And again, for our hypothetical investor in January, that's exactly what it would have happened to them. That would be a bad thing. But of course, over time, it really doesn't matter because the market comes back. But let's suppose that, let's take an investor who didn't do it in January of this year, let's suppose they did it in January of last year. So let's suppose in January of last year, you had $120,000 and you said, you know what, I'm going to dollar cost average it in over the next 12 months. I'm going to put $10,000 a month in because I don't want to be caught in the bear trap. So you do that. Well, the market last year did nothing but go up. So every month, you're getting fewer shares for your $10,000. And then finally, this January, you're done. And what happens? The bear comes along. So you, you got caught in the bear trap anyway. It didn't, it didn't protect you from that. That's another reason I don't like it. Mathematically, 75% of the time, you will have been better off investing in a lump sum. And even if you dollar cost average, you're not accomplishing the goal of avoiding the bear trap that you set out to accomplish you're not guaranteed to do that anyway it would take extraordinarily good timing for that to be accomplished now person doing it this January would have benefited from that extraordinarily good timing but that's luck and nothing more
1: so with so many different choices these days i see a lot of new investors getting overwhelmed with mm-hmm. choosing an investment firm or brokerage to invest with and i think that it's important to get the right brokerage, but it's a relatively small thing and people get really hung up on it. So I want to hear from you, which brokerage do you recommend and why do you think it's superior than the competition?
3: Well, so first of all, I I do agree with you that it's a relatively small thing as long as you're with a reputable firm. The much more important thing is, in my opinion, is to focus on broad-based index funds, total stock market index fund, which is my preference, S&P 500 fund, almost as broad and and perfectly serviceable. So that's where people's focus should be rather than whether they're at Fidelity or someplace else. My personal preference is Vanguard. And the reason for that is Vanguard is structured differently than every other investment firm out there in the sense that it is owned by its investors. So if you think of Apple, company Apple, and I'm not picking on Apple, this is true of almost every company out there, companies serve two masters. They serve their customers and they serve their owners. So, Apple puts out computers and other devices, and their objective is to sell as many as they can for as much money as they can. Now, to do that, they try to provide the best possible product for their customers at a good price point. But they are always going to be looking to sell those those products as, as high a price as possible because that brings in more revenue and more profit for their shareholders for their owners. And make no mistake in every company, the major, the most important stakeholder if you will are the shareholders. That's what companies are designed to benefit is the owners. So Apple is first and foremost trying to enrich its shareholders. It does that if it's a good quality company and I think Apple is, by trying to provide good products at a good price for its customers, but it's always trying to get the most money it can for those products the same thing in the investment world. So, Fidelity, and I'm, I don't mean to pick on Fidelity in particular because this is true of every other investment firm other than Vanguard, has two masters. It has the Johnson family, Fidelity's privately owned, who own the shares and any other shareholders they have, and Fidelity's main objective is to provide the best possible return to those shareholders. It does that by trying to provide good products at a good value to their customers. Make no mistake Fidelity's objective is always going to be to charge the maximum fees they can get away with. T. Rowe Price is a publicly traded investment firm, same thing. Only their owners happen to be public shareholders. Vanguard is owned by its shareholders. That's the way Jack Bogle designed it. So there is an entirely different motivation behind Vanguard. There's no there's no point in trying to maximize return to shareholders because it's the same people who own the funds. So Vanguard's core mission and core one of Vanguard's core values is to continually drive down costs in their funds. That's just a core mission. Every other investment firm does that only to be competitive. But for Vanguard, it's a core value. And they can afford for it to be a core value because their owners, their shareholders, are identical with the people who own the funds that pay the expenses. So there'd be no point in raising those expenses to provide more profit to those owners, that would just make it a taxable event. So the difference is Vanguard is always motivated to drive down costs, and costs matter critically to investors. So that's why I'm at Vanguard. But but again, make no mistake, a total stock market index fund is a total stock market index fund no matter What investment firm you buy it from.
1: So if we talk about, let's just take Fidelity and Vanguard as an example, those are my two favorites. If we look at a total stock market fund, does it matter from a fee perspective or a cost perspective if those two funds have the exact same expense ratio? Or is there something else that we need to consider? Or is it really just that expense ratio number?
3: You know, you can get deep in the weeds as to exactly what index the fund tracks and what have you. But for our purposes and the purposes of our listeners, no. The index fund fundamentally is an index fund. So a question I'll get a lot is people say, Well, Jim, I'm looking at my four oh one K and it they you know, I can't buy VTSAX, which is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund, but they do have this total stock market fund from Fidelity. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely that's okay. I mean, that's that's not a bad choice at all. And there are some people who prefer Fidelity. Fidelity is a fine organization. There are some people who prefer Fidelity because they like the service. Fidelity has come out with index funds that have no expense ratio at all, which is a marketing move. And it's one that I don't approve of because that's simply shifting the costs of those funds onto the shoulders of their other fund holders. So I have a little bit of an ethical issue with that. But in terms of the people who own that fund, they're getting a free ride. So you know, I, I wouldn't go to Fidelity for it. I wouldn't change. But an index fund is an index fund.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break. And we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com
0: slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
2: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement.
1: the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, which is ticker VTSAX. Why do you prefer that over a broad-based, low-cost, even Vanguard S&P 500 fund, like, say, VOO or VFINX?
3: My preference is very slight. Let's make that point first. Jack Bogle himself phoned the uh, index 500 fund that was the very first index fund he created which is probably why he he owned it cuz he I'm sure he owned it from the beginning and just kept adding to it the reason i like the total stock market index fund is it just is that much broader it includes small companies and mid-sized companies small cap mid cap companies and i like having that little bit of extra now to be clear about and I'm probably going to have these percentages not quite right. About 80 percent of VTSAX is made up of the S and P 500, so they are very, very close. And the amount of of uh, small and mid cap stocks you have are relatively small in the fund, and that's why they're so equivalent. Uh, in fact, if you track a a chart of their performance over time, you know, over 10, 20 years, it's remarkable how closely they track each other. And 20 years from now, one of them will have slightly outperformed the other. I would guess that it's going to be BTSAX simply because small cap and and mid cap are kind of like adding spice to the stew. But that sort of depends on what's in favor over the next 20 years, whether it's large companies or smaller companies. But either one of them for our purposes of long-term investing are just fine.
1: So we've been talking about these different funds and ETFs, Well, we talked about the Vanguard total stock market index fund which is the mutual fund VTSAX but they also have a ETF that tracks it so what is the difference between the two
3: so an ETF stands for exchange traded fund and BTI is Vanguard's exchange traded fund that holds the total stock market index portfolio so it's important for listeners to realize that whether you own VTSAX or you own VTI, you own precisely the same portfolio. So it really doesn't matter for our purposes which you own. This is a question I get a lot. And that's true of of all funds, or most of them now have an ETF version, and you're whether you buy the ETF or you buy the fund, you're owning the same portfolio. I don't think we want to go into the weeds as to what the differences are exactly between ETFs because they're pretty subtle or why they were invented. It has a lot to do with making them more easily tradable. But for our purposes as long term investors, they are essentially the same vehicle. Truth is, at the moment, for whatever reason, VTI has a slightly lower expense ratio than VTSAX. So when people, and I'm always touting VTSAX because that's just what I've invested in over the decades, but when people ask me, is VTI okay? My answer is not only is it okay at the moment, it's probably slightly better. So it really doesn't matter.
1: I think one of the things that differs too is the type of account that you're using. So I know if you're investing through a 401k, a lot of times you can only invest in mutual funds and you can't invest in ETFs. Whereas if you're investing outside of a 401k, you have the option to go either the mutual fund route or the ETF route. So that could be a dynamic that's at play uh, for the listeners.
3: Yeah, that's the thing with with 401ks. You know, 401k plans all are limited to whatever investment choices they happen to put forth. And as you said, the, you know, usually you're going to be choosing funds in your 401k. But that gets into what we talked about a moment ago. A lot of 401ks don't carry Vanguard funds, and they don't carry a BTSAX or or Vanguard's S and P 500. But they might carry it from Fidelity or some other. And again, those are those are fine. But that's yeah, that's the nuances and, and some of the limitations of four hundred one k's.
1: I am a big proponent of Vanguard too. Like I said a few minutes ago, and I recently started a new job about a year ago, a new full time job, and I was very excited to see that their four hundred one k is through Vanguard, so I am able to take advantage of, of those funds, which is which is great. But I want to talk about why does the investment world seem so complex? Why do people make it seem so complex when it can be made simple and people can still earn great results?
3: Well, because the investment world isn't designed to help investors earn great results, it's designed to line the pockets of the people in the investment world. So make no mistake that Wall Street is always creating new and complex products because the more complex it is, the more they more in the way of fees they can charge, the more confusing they can make it, the more likely they are to convince people that oh, this is way above your pretty little head. let us take care of it for you and of course they charge high fees for that so it's in it's in the investment world's best interest to make things as opaque and complex and confusing as possible so they can charge the highest fees possible and have us driven into their into their open arms um, the analogy i use is imagine you had a table a huge dining room table and it was filled with all kinds of exotic delicacies that you couldn't couldn't even begin to decipher what was in them or, or how to make them. Uh, and in one tiny corner of this table were sort of the basic, fundamental, nutritious kinds of foods that, that your body really needs and that's really healthy for you. And then you have all this exotic stuff that may or may not be healthy for you and, and uh, probably has things that are not. Well, you could put your arm on that table and sweep all that stuff onto the floor because all you really need and all you really want. Are those simple, basic things? And in our analogy, those simple, basic things are broad-based index funds, and everything else are all these exotic products that Wall Street has come up with. It was it was kind of legendary that in the 0708 crash, with all the kinds of derivatives and things that Wall Street had created, people who created them didn't understand them; they were so complex. So that's the bad news. The good news for us is that we don't need it. We don't need it. Wall, Wall Street, as far as I'm concerned, can continue to do whatever it wants to do. doesn't affect me as a long-term investor at all, as long as I have my low-cost index funds. That's all I need. That's all I care about. And that's what makes this so simple for people like my daughter who really don't want to get into the weeds. They don't have to. I mean, just like people who don't really want to get into the weeds on exotic foods, you can have a very nutritious diet just sticking to very basic simple quality kinds of foods.
1: Yeah, I I agree with your entire philosophy. I think for people that don't want to dive into the weeds, I think it's a great way to invest. But how about the people that do want to dive into the weeds? What about a lot of people that listen to the show love stock investing. They're like you and I, they're very passionate about it. A lot of people like to pick individual stocks. Do you think there's room in someone's portfolio to do some stock picking as well as some just index fund investing or ETF investing?
3: Well, so first of all, I mean, obviously people are free to do whatever they want to do. I wrote a post probably two or three years ago now in response to this. And the title of the post is Too Hot, Too Cold, Not Pure Enough. And you know, I'm continually, I have my my readership is made up broadly speaking of two groups of people like my daughter who just want to understand the basics so they can get things right and go on with their lives. And then because I talk about investing, you know, I have a lot of people who are really into investing. And those people who are really into investing are continually telling me, oh, Jim, you're way too aggressive. You know, being in all stocks or or heavily tilted towards stocks is way too aggressive. And then I have others that are saying, oh, no, you're way too conservative. You know, if you did this and you tinkered with it this way and you added more small cap stocks and you know, so it's that's the too hot, too cold kind of thing. I obviously think that my approach is the best approach. If I didn't, I'd be talking about some other approach. I think a broad based index fund will serve my needs. It'll serve my daughter's needs. I actually achieved, and this is one of my dirty little secrets, I actually achieved financial independence in 1989 before I embraced indexing. So I achieved it by picking individual stocks and, and picking. Actively managed mutual funds that were run by people who were picking individual stocks. And that's an important distinction, I think, because it's not like picking individual stocks can't work. It's not like inactively managed funds never produce a return. They do. The thing is that their returns, by and large, are not as powerful as the index, and the research backs that up. And it takes a lot more time and effort and work to, to get there. I mean, it took me a lot more time and effort and work to if you're an active manager by definition it's going to i would have been far better off if i'd embraced indexing early because i would have gotten a better result for less effort but i understand the appeal of picking individual stocks i mean there are a few things more intoxicating than researching a company picking a stock and watching it go up it goes back though to our our thing about hubris you know is you've done all your research and and it turns out that you're right and the stock is going up you know be a little bit cautious because it might not be just that you're that clever. It might be that you just got a little bit lucky. It might be that you're clever. But if you do it long enough, you'll have enough times where you get it wrong that you'll probably have humility beaten into you. Even if overall you make money and I had both. I had humility beaten into me, but I, I made money at the same time. What I do kind of object to or I, I discourage is this idea of, well, I'm gonna put the bulk of my money in index funds because I know that's the best thing to do. And then I'm gonna keep five, ten percent Play with, you know, to have fun with and investing in individual stocks. And it depends on your motivation, I guess. If, you know, if you think that maybe in that 5 or 10%, you've got a pretty good chance of picking the next Amazon or the next Google, then okay. If you're really doing it to play, I would suggest that investment is not recreation, it's money. I, I don't invest to play, I invest to make money. And if I thought, I could outperform the index with any kind of reliability. I wouldn't just be taking 10% of my money and putting it in stocks. I'd be, that's what I would be doing is buying stocks. So the idea of having play money just doesn't sit particularly well with me, but I'm not anybody's mother, so they can do whatever they want to do.
1: So is that idea. A potentially bad one because of how the money is defined or earmarked. Because, like you said, if it's play money, that might not be a good thing. But if you're doing portfolio allocation because that's just how you want to build your portfolio, is that necessarily a bad thing? So, for like for me, I started 100% with just picking stocks. Then I found your book and I found some other Rick Ferry. He is the head of Bogleheads Investing. So he's very into the same style of investing. So I decided to put about 50% of my portfolio in just index funds, let it do its thing. But I'm very passionate about individual stocks as well. I have the time. I don't look at that as play money. I look at that as very real money that I want to invest, but it's just something that I like, I like to do. I see it as a real investment. I'm trying to make money with it, not as as quote unquote play money. So is it that dynamic? Is it how you define the money or is it just overall not really a great idea in your opinion?
3: Well, I think both. I think it's how you define the money. So I think the way you're defining it and the way you're doing it is better in my opinion than people who are saying, well, I just want to play with it. But the research is pretty clear. It is very, very difficult to outperform the market picking individual stocks. And so you might be the exception, but you are probably setting yourself over time to underperform. So one of the things that, that with my readers who are really into this, this stuff, I think it's dangerous because they're the ones, and it sounds like you might fall into this category, Robert, who like to tinker with it. They like to engage with it. And my daughter doesn't. And my guess is that over 20 years, she will outperform you from her benign neglect because she's not going to be tempted to tinker with it. And I think people who are tempted to tinker with it have chosen a much harder road and probably a less profitable one. But on the other hand, I mean, I've been where you are, so I I understand. When I hear the arguments for picking individual stocks, it's my own voice in my head that I hear because I I made those arguments for decades, literally. And so I get it. It is great fun and it's a great education in the companies and how they work and and so if you want to do it and you understand the risks, then again, it's, it's your call. But I learned not to do it.
1: It's funny you say that because I agree with everything you just said. And it was almost like ignorance was bliss for me because I didn't know a lot about index investing. I was just picking individual stocks because that was really all I knew. And so I didn't know any better. It was, I didn't want to say it was easy to pick stocks that were going to outperform, but it was easy for me to make the decision to pick individual stocks. Now that I've studied it a lot more, both Boglehead investing as well as your book and a lot of the stuff that you talk about, it's a lot harder for me to pick individual stocks because now when I go to do that, rather than just thinking about is this a good investment, I think, well, would this money actually be better in VTI or VOO rather than in individual company? So I don't know where my portfolio will end up. Maybe as I get a little bit older, maybe I'll say, you know, forget all this stock picking stuff. Maybe I'll just go 100% to to index funds. But and I know that the the data is against me, and your daughter could very well outperform me, but. It's one of those things I enjoy learning about. I enjoy doing, and I think it'll be an educational experience if it doesn't end up being prosperous.
3: Well, Robert, I give I give you big props for your your awareness of of all that and your analysis of it. And in my defense, there was not nearly as much information available in my day. My book obviously wasn't available, but I started investing in 1975, which coincidentally is the year that Jack Bogle created the first index fund. I didn't know that at the time, and I would not nearly have been wise enough to embrace it even if I had known it. And the reason I know I wouldn't have been wise enough to embrace it is because in 1985, when I did learn about it, I wasn't wise enough to embrace it. And it took me, unlike you, it sounds like you discovered index funds and pretty quickly shifted at least part of your portfolio over to it. Well, it took me 15 years to finally accept the advantages that index funds offered. And so I'm in no position to criticize you or what you're, or what you're doing. In fact, I, you know, I applaud your, your way of thinking. And you know, I don't think you're doing the optimal thing, but I, but I think you're thinking it through very clearly that will serve you well. And you're certainly moving in the right direction much more quickly than I did. So.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So I want to wrap up the show. What is the biggest mistake that you see new investors making? And how can listeners of this show avoid that
3: same mistake? You mean besides picking individual and stocks? And I was going to say,
1: you can say picking individual stocks if that is the, the mistake you see.
3: Yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's not. I think the, the biggest mistake I see, and I, I kind of see it in bold relief at the moment in the middle of this bear market, is people try, as Warren Buffett warned against, to dance in and out of the market. People think they can time the market. I, I put up a tweet and I put it up on Facebook. On about a week ago now. And I, I said, you know, I, I've noticed there's a new symptom of COVID 19 clairvoyance. Because everywhere I turn, I'm hearing people say they know what the market's going to do. And nobody knows what the market is going to do. There are, you know, there are people on my blog and my most recent posts in the comments who are debating this very subject. People who've said, oh, I've sold and I know the market's going to keep going down further. And I don't know what the market's going to do. As I say, the market, and when I look today was going up, it went up dramatically yesterday. I, I didn't expect that. But for all I know, you and I are going to disconnect and I'm going to look and the market's down or maybe it's even higher and who knows what the rest of the week is. I, nobody knows. And people who say they know are fooling themselves. And if they say they're, they know within a, trying to persuade people to follow their advice, then they're just trying to fool other people probably for their own benefit. So that's the biggest mistake is having the hubris to think that you or anybody else knows what this market is going to do next because we don't. Is, have we hit the bottom of the market? Is it back up from here? Possibly. Is it going to turn around and go back down 50, 60%? Possibly. I have no idea. Neither does anybody else. And that's the biggest mistake I see out there.
1: So, JL, I've learned so much from you just over the years from all your content, and then today through this conversation. And I know I really, really enjoyed it. So I can only imagine that the audience will as well. Where can those listening to the show today go to learn more about you and connect with you further?
3: Best place to start is, is on the blog, which is jlcollinsnh.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, so people can seek me out at jlcollinsnh, and you'll find me there if you care to.
1: I'll be sure to put links to the blog, Twitter, Facebook, a couple of the other resources that we talked about throughout the show, the specific blog posts that we talked about, right. and also put links to some of the funds, the total stock market index fund that we, we talked about today. So you guys can look into that as well. JL, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
3: It's entirely my pleasure and, and thanks for inviting me. I had a lot of fun with you.
1: All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.